Welcome to GatorCast, Green River College's official podcast. This is Suzanne Johnson coming to you today, president at the college, and we're about to jump right back into a conversation with Dr. C. Nicole Mason. This is part two of a two-part interview. I had the great pleasure of having her in our sound booth here at campus. So if you haven't listened to part one, please jump back out, go back, listen to part one, and then join in to part two. You're welcome to go ahead and listen, but we are picking up our conversation midway. And for those new listeners and you didn't listen to part one, you don't have time to jump back to part one, let me just give you a little bit of background information about Dr. Mason before we resume our conversation. Dr. C. Nicole Mason is the author of Born Bright, A Young Girl's Journey from Nothing to Something in America, published by St. Martin's Press and is a professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies and a visiting scholar at the Center for Public and Nonprofit Leadership at Georgetown University. In addition, she serves as Executive Director of the Center for Research and Policy in the Public Interest at the New York Women's Foundation. Prior to this position, Dr. Mason served as Executive Director of the Women of Color Policy Network at New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. There, she held the distinction of being one of the youngest scholar practitioners to lead a major U.S. research center or think tank. Dr. Mason is an Ascend Fellow at the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C., and has written hundreds of articles on women, leadership development, and economic security. Her writing and commentary have been featured on MSNBC, CNN, NBC, CBS, Real Clear Politics, The Nation, The Washington Post, Marie Claire Magazine, The New York Times, The Progressive, Essence Magazine, The Root, The Miami Herald, Democracy Now!, and numerous NPR affiliates, among others. And one of my favorites, Dr. Mason delivered a well-received TED Talk at TED Women on the courage to disrupt and the gift of being difficult. Dr. Mason's spark for social change came about while volunteering her time at a local battered women's shelter in Washington, D.C., Before then, she never thought it was possible to make a career out of helping others or using one's voice to help bring about change. Some additional facts that are especially favorites of mine, it might be of interest to you to know that she is a mother of two precocious twins, Charlie and Parker, has a motorcycle license, can lay a hardwood floor, and lives by the motto, you must dance through life. You know, we've talked... um, a lot about at our, at our campus, and in fact, you presented, um, you know, here on the intersectionalities of race, gender, class, um, and education. And you're describing, you know, experiences that many students might encounter, um, and students of color, uh, women, and so on, um, when they approach into domains that they do not see themselves reflected in um, or have not traditionally or historically been seen in and how to navigate and work through these you know stereotype uh, threats or just by virtue of how they present um, expectations or assumptions about the capacity and the ability of that person is already being drawn by other and or that student perceives that that is happening, right? That their assessment by the other person is is assuming less 
by virtue of their skin, um, their economic background, their gender. How have you navigated that um, in your life, and what thoughts can you share with with everyone listening in terms of being? I think I think it's really tough and dehumanizing, actually, when you're face to face with someone and they see you as less than, and you have the perception that they're judging you based upon your race or your class, your gender identity, your sexual orientation. It's really painful because they can't, they don't see you as a whole person. And, um, and I've had experiences of the sort even now, you know, um, and it's still really painful. It doesn't, the sting, it, it doesn't dissipate um, because of age or experience. Um, how I've dealt with those types of encounters is to remind myself in those moments about who I am and what I know to be true about myself and understand that it's not personal. They're the ones with blinders on, not me. They're the ones who can't see me as a doctor. They're the ones who are judging me because of my race or, you know, and it's not my fight. It's not, it's not personal, even though it's made me angry sometimes because I think that, you know, to not be seen or to be stereotyped is a really very um, painful experience. And so I have to turn to a place where I am affirmed or what I know to be true about myself and my experiences and, you know, again, who am who am I at the core? You know, I you know, I think it's 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 really um it can be painful. And I'm thinking about the students, you know, where this happens, because it happens a lot of times with students. I you know, I know to be true I was, you know, one of those students. And what makes it difficult as a student is because is that you feel a little bit powerless because if somebody doesn't see you as capable, then the chances of them opening up access and opportunities to you is pretty slim. So you're really depending on someone to see you as somebody worthy of care and of help. And if they don't, then the doors are closed to you. So you're really vulnerable and very uh, dependent. The only thing I can say and offer up in my strategy has been to find someone else, you know, who can affirm me. Just a, a quick story. I had a professor in graduate school. This guy was just the worst. He was, he was the worst. <laughs> and he, <laughs> I think we, if we, if you know, for any of our listeners who have been in graduate school, I think we can all relate. relate. To this I can certainly relate. relate to this guy. He was the worst, and. He just made me feel like I was really not smart. And he also told me that I could not write. And um, We should send a copy of the book to I him. I should send a copy. Frankly, and, I've and thought about it. And actually many this. articles and publications <laughs> that you have. Let's just send a whole box to him. <laughs> to him and say, say, here you go. Yeah. By the way, thank you. Thank you. Thank for, you. you know. and so he told you you, you he, couldn't write. He said I couldn't write and 
he he was not a nice guy. In fact, he was the reason. There were two black women in the program, myself and another woman, and we took his class together. And after his class, she dropped out of the program. Okay. And so he was he was pretty harsh. And I was beginning to internalize the things that he told me. And then I went to another professor, and I said, I'm not sure about this, but I just wondered what you thought about my writing and what you thought about the things that I, you know, say. And he said, I think you're a good writer, you know. And he was really affirming. You know, I was shy in graduate school. Uh, It was a new space. And he called on me regularly. He engaged me, and he brought me into the conversation. And I just looked for him. And the other person just sort of faded away. Um, And I think that's what you have to do. You have to look for the people who can lift you up and affirm you in the face of a person who doesn't see your your shine or your your glow you know this is a a, a great point to to go back to something we were talking about earlier when uh, we were discussing the sort of inner strength or you know I hesitate to say grit but this inner strength or or courage that you've had but that is in contrast to this notion that grit in and of itself um, is probably not enough, that there there must be external supports and there must be an examination of systems around the individual person. It's an interplay, right, between the individual and the environments that they're in, the context that they're in. And I'm what I'm hearing in terms of times when you've confronted racism uh, sexism, homophobia, whatever it might be, or combinations of all, that there's sort of a combination that you've navigated. Yes, of course, you, you have that, you've expressed this ability to find that inner strength, but then you seek out the external affirmations as well. Um, and I think that's really important, especially for our student listeners here, and or actually anyone who's listening to us today. There are times when each of us are confronted with individuals that are extraordinarily invalidating, non-supportive, in fact, quite the opposite, right? I mean, or more extreme. They are absolutely oppositional, and they are going to tell you things and engage you in ways that make you question yourself. And it does require inner strength, but it does require the help of others. And at many times in your story in Born Bright, there are those moments and opportunities. And now you've just shared another story, which I don't think is in the book, um, in terms of knowing to seek out another opinion or another, just another person um, in those times of, of self-doubt. Everyone has self-doubt. I think sometimes when, when people see individuals that are extraordinarily successful like you, their, their assumption is that you've got it all together, it, it's like that all the time, you never have question or self-doubt in terms of what you're doing day to day, you've got clear direction. And that may not be the most accurate description. No, and I, I don't think it's accurate for most people. I think there's there are definite times where we all feel vulnerable, we all f- question our abilities, our capabilities and um, will we ever make it to the other side or to the end and in those moments we have to find 
our support and people who love us and care about us and even if they don't love us are willing still to give us the support that we need you know when I say that I mean like you know you're not my mother you're not my you know but if there's a teacher or you know a friend you know finding those people who can provide a a system of support and the other thing I, I want to say, and I don't talk a lot, I think I talk about it a little bit in the book at the end, is, you know, I think it's really important, like, we have our support systems and our networks, but it's really important for us to, when we're thinking about expanding and transforming, to go beyond our comfort zone and find opportunities that are outside of what we know and are comfortable with. So, for example, uh, today I was meeting with the Black Student Union, the students, and I asked them how they got to Green River. Oh, I'm so interested in what you learned. So so the stories were, you know, quite interesting, but, but, you know, the consensus was that they all love Green River. (laughs) I'm happy to hear that. Happy to hear that. They were happy to be there. Um, One student said... I was scared, you know, when I got out of high school and I wanted to come someplace familiar and Green River was in my neighborhood, in my community. And so I came to Green River, which I think is amazing that, you know, he felt like in his, he knew he wanted to go somewhere, but was unsure. And he felt like Green River was the place that he could come. And after we finished the conversation, I circled back around and I said, you know, wherever you want to go after this, you can go, you know, you you know, you have to stretch a little bit and you can go to, you can stay in Seattle, but you can also go across the country. I you tell can, the know? students this every time, like you can go anywhere from here. If it's around the corner from where you're living right now, terrific, but you can go anywhere Any- from here. From the banks of the Green River to the world. That's, I'm trying to, you know, coin that phrase. But <laughs> it's, you know, not, it's not taken it's off not as much <laughs> as the, you can go anywhere from here. I think, I, but to get them to believe that, truly believe it within themselves. I mean, I think it's important, I'm, and I'm so grateful to you to be able to share that message with our students, because we all need to hear that from outside. Everyone needs external validation. Everyone needs the cheerleaders. You know, it would be great to have them, you know, like in the shower every day. You know, <laughs> Yay, go you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we might not be able to have that. But uh, having those validation voices, what was the reaction that you got when you said that? He smiled and he said, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it is right. And, you know, you can think small and you can think this is where, you know, or you can, you know, think really big and broadly and, and it's scary and it's outside of your comfort zone. But where do you want to be? You know, where do you want to go? And, you know, I think connecting and finding those bridge opportunities to take you out of your community and your comfort zone, um, I think, is, you know, what's necessary. I, In Born Bright, I tell the story of um, the study that I came across. And they asked... Um, low-income kids to draw their neighborhoods in the world, and they draw, they draw the corner store, um, you know, their immediate neighborhood. 
And then when that really struck me, you know, it's 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 true. And you ask upper middle class kids to draw the world and they draw China and all these things. And, you know, that was true for me. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it's true for a lot of people. But I think even the suggestion of, you know, there's this really big world and it belongs to you, too. I think is really, uh, you know, a powerful. And, you know, I plan to stay in California when I graduated, co- you know, high school. And it was that my counselor said, you know, you should apply to Howard University in Washington, D.C., you know. And that was big because I'd never been outside of... Clear across the cr- country. You know. And I did it because she's, she said I should do it, you know. And so it really opened my mind to other possibilities because before I had really had very small thinking around these things and where I could go and what I could be and you know but there was no there was no leash I could go wherever you know it gets back to what you were saying earlier about constrained choices and for many who live in impoverished environments whether economic and emotional you know there's different types of impoverishment right but um, poverty carries it all, right? Emotional, physical, real-life stressors. And it limits one's vision or one's potential possible selves. And to be able to open that door for any individual, what a, what a gift. What a gift. I think that your book does that for many and resonates uh, for many. Um, I can testify to that in terms of what the impact of having so many of our classes utilize this book this year and for, you know, staff and faculty who read this. Because as you bring up, you know, growth doesn't happen in your comfort zone. When you're feeling awkward, when you're feeling uncomfortable, that's probably a sign that you're growing. And we, we need to gain comfort in being uncomfortable and trying those new things out. So I want to shift a little bit now and talk about what you're doing these days. Uh, You're currently the executive director of the Center for Research and Policy in the Public Interest at New York Women's Foundation, and you are a visiting scholar at the Center for Public and Nonprofit Leadership. What are you up to these days? I, you know... I'm up to a lot. I really I love and enjoy the work that I'm doing. So at the Center for Research and Policy in the Public Interest, I continue to do a lot of writing on poverty and economic security. A lot of my writing today focuses on really making the connections between race, gender, and the working class. And by that I mean really trying to understand the similarities between the white working class and um the black and Latino working class, and trying to create and connect the dots and and try to better understand the ways in which the working class is similar, uh, because I think there's this narrative around um, black working class people over here and, you know, taking jobs, and there's this economic angst around the white working class, and really trying to think about what unites us rather than what divides the working class and the middle class. uh, And what are those unifying variables? What are the things that tie us together? 
one of the things I, I truly believe is that we all want the same things. We all want a really good life. We all want to be able to provide for our families. And if we have children, to make sure that they are healthy, have a quality education, and go on to college and are, you know, able to live successful and thriving lives. And so I believe that's true across race, across class, across gender. And so I think that's one of the narratives and one of the things that I think unites us. You know, we all want to live our version of a good life. And when I think about uh, the working class, the fact that, you know, wages have stagnated, people are really struggling to make ends meet, living paycheck to paycheck, and people are really struggling to figure out how to make a living in this high-tech economy and making sure that they, you know, have a home and, you know, have savings and can really take care of themselves. And that's not a black or white issue. That's a human issue. That's an American issue. That's Those are the issues that we all care about. And what I see now is that, you know, there's a lot of conversation that seeks to divide us and say, you know, we don't want the same things or this group of people is is really working to try to take what you have. And, and that's just not true. And so through stories, I've really been able to talk about the connections that we all share. And, you know, I was in Kentucky and um, a white woman was talking about how she was working two or three jobs. Her husband was unemployed and their house was going into foreclosure. You know, that's not a white problem. That's not, you know, and it's not a her problem. That's a problem that a lot of people have around the country, and I can empathize with her, and I completely understand what she's experiencing. And, you know, sharing with her that, you know, you're not the only one who's going through this, um, and um, it's not about you. It's about a system that's broken, and that's not working for anybody. And so my work these days, uh, at least around my research, um, you know, I do a lot of research these days on um, rural communities and really trying to make the connection between what's happening in rural communities in terms of economic security with what's happening in urban communities and really connecting the dots around those things. And, you know, it's really important firsthand research that um, actually not a lot of people try to connect those dots in, in, in this kind of way, using stories as well as data. So let's talk about systems that are broken. And I'm going to read an excerpt from your book, and it states as follows. The truth is that only about 4% of those born into poverty, or in the bottom 20% of Americans economically, will ever make it to the top fifth of income earners in the U.S. For most, regardless of race, escaping poverty is akin to winning the lottery. Why is this? Why, in a nation overflowing with riches and teeming with opportunity, are the odds of escaping poverty on par with the odds of being struck by lightning? Why is that? Why is that? Because I think we're not telling the truth to people. We're not being honest about that we're not all starting at the same place. 
that conditions are not equal, that it takes more than grit and hard work and a good business idea to reach the middle class or reach the top. And what's so disconcerting to me is that when, you, when they survey people about their belief in the American dream, everybody still believes it, even if very few people ever achieve it. And, and so it's, it's, it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our fabric. It's a powerful narrative. It's a very powerful narrative. Um, and so we blame ourselves if we don't, reach, we don't achieve the American dream as we understand it and spend very little time thinking about how the system might be rigged so that you don't make it or you don't make it out. Uh, and so having really difficult conversations around do you really think it's you or do you think there's a system at work here that prevents you and other people from making it to the top? And I don't, sorry, I may get a little political. That's the appeal of Donald Trump. You know, it's not real, but the idea that this is a self-made guy who's a billionaire um, who owns these lo- a lot of businesses and, you know, is really wealthy and well-off. And the idea is that you, too, could be Donald Trump if you just worked really hard. And the truth of the matter is, is that you can never be Donald Trump. But it's such a powerful narrative that when people question it and say, hey, you know, he had a, he had a leg up, or, hey, this is not right, or hey, something's wrong with this system or something's wrong with the fact that people are poor, 47 million people um, are living in poverty, instead of saying and looking at what is obviously a flaw, you point to the people who don't have and say, you're just jealous, you're just envious, you just want what this person has. (laughs) It's like, no, that is not what's going on. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with the system where there's very few people at the top who are uber wealthy and well off and everybody else is at the bottom or really struggling to make ends meet. It's really kind of bizarre, actually. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and I think it's partly because this narrative is really, really very powerful. And you can sub Donald Trump out with Warren Buffett. People are like, wow, I could be Warren Buffett if I really worked hard enough or Oprah Winfrey people love Oprah too <laughs> you know right. and the chances there's only one Oprah <clears throat> there is only one there's Oprah. only a handful just of like there's one Donald <laughs> Trump yeah. and one you Warren know, Buffett but there are a lot of people who are struggling right now to pay their mortgage because of the furlough <laughs> so there are more of those people than there are of Oprah and Donald Trump and Warren Buffett sure so here we are at Green River College and um, as I'm listening to you talk about systems and and your work and I know we'll want to have you know more conversations about your upcoming writing and and uh, publications and, and presentations I'm reminded of one of my one of my all-time favorite quotes and I'm sure you know people from the college will will recognize this and it was uh, a quote from Nelson Mandela and he said education is the strongest weapon which you can use to change the world. Where does a college like Green River College, which is a community college, open access, 
a public institution. All are welcome here. Uh, we meet the student where they are. We say no matter what your past is, what how your performance was, you can come and go anywhere from here. What role do we play in helping of the broken systems? Well, that's a really good question. And community colleges, including Green River, are really critical to students who have been failed along the way, where the education system has failed them, community systems have failed them. You all keep the door open for them and provide opportunities that they might not otherwise have. You provide an entree um, for low-income students who are barely making ends meet, and you say, we're going to meet you where you are and figure out how you can make this work while also taking care of your family. So it's a, it's a very, I think community colleges play a very critical role. And if I may, in answering this question, um, put it in sharp contrast to, you know, a recent phenomena. So I'm sure that you've heard about the Ivies mm-hmm. who say um, that if you earn a certain amount of your family, you have a certain, like, $100,000 or less will pay for you to attend. And people say, wow, that's really great. Harvard, Stanford, you're t- it's amazing. And I said, it's really, it's if you look a little bit closer, it's really not that amazing because you got to get there first. You have to have, there's so many things that have to happen before you get to the financial aid <laughs> package right, of right. the institution to make that even possible. You know, we're talking about schools that are broken, K through 12. We talk about all the obstacles that we've we've talked about over, you know, our time together. And there's no conversation about fixing those things so that the pathway is clear for them to get to the, the door of Stanford. So what I find really innovative and interesting about places like Green River College is you're not making those kinds of promises. You know where students are coming from. You know what it feels like and, and understand what it feels like to educate a population where systems have failed them along the way. And, you know, there's no tricks or gimmicks. You know you're opening the doors. And so I, I think that's the beauty and benefit of institutions like Green River College. You, you have a very sobering um, attitude towards what it really takes to... Um, integrate a student into a community um, who've had multiple barriers and really honest about the kind of resources and support it takes for them to make sure that they finish along, you know, finish their journey and graduate. You know, I've said to um, so many since I've, I've come to Green River that one of the things I strive, you know, as the, as the president here and I hope to impact and help develop further is that I can stop any student on the campus and ask them um, two questions. One is, do you feel like you belong here? And hear yes every single time. And the next question is, can you name at least one person who would care if you didn't come back tomorrow? And have them be able to identify not just one person, but any number of people. And I know that we strive each day as a college to do that. 
One of the other things that I think is important for people to to know about the college is that, and I've said this on campus, I've said it off campus, the quality of college education that a student can receive here at the college is as good as or better than any education you can achieve or have at any other institution, four-year college, private, public, or otherwise. And I say that because of our programs, I say that because of our faculty and their qualifications and credentials. But even more so, people who work here at the college are committed to instruction and teaching and learning. And it is the hallmark and a foundation of our institution. And oh yes, and incidentally, it will cost you very little money to go, right? The lead is the quality. But it it is so important to remember that we are a vital part of a solution to things which are broken. So we're almost out of time today. I can't believe how quickly this has gone. If you had, I'm going to ask you two questions. If you had one piece of advice to give to all of the students at Green River or the prospective students in our communities that are listening who are thinking about coming to Green River, what would that be? If you're thinking about Green River or coming to Green River, I think you should come. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like the first thing. Right. And if you're here at Green River, my piece of advice is to keep going, to keep showing up, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, to work to figure things out when you're uncertain, and to ask for help and support when you need it. Great. And my other question is, what advice can you leave all of all of the staff and faculty, all of us who work here at Green River, what is the most important thing or things that we should keep in mind as we serve our students from our communities? The last time I was here, I talked about the importance of being seen. And students want to be seen. Everybody wants to be seen and want to know and understand that you see them and all of who they are. And so when I think about faculty and staff, like you said, they're exceptional, they're really bright, they care about the students, but it's easy to not see the students and um, see the whole student. And so I think checking in and doing a gut check and asking, do I, am I seeing the students? Am I seeing them for who they are and what they're coming with? And how can I support them in their wholeness? You know, and I think um, if we put that with quality and all the good things that are happening here, I think it's a winning combination. I hope you've enjoyed our two-part conversation with Dr. Mason. This has been a pure pleasure and joy to have her in our sound booth, not just for one episode, but for two episodes of our GatorCast. As a reminder, if you'd like more information about Dr. Mason's work or our One Book program, please go to greenriver.edu forward slash GatorCast. You'll find links for both of those. In addition, 
Don't hesitate to subscribe, and you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Music. Go to greenriver.edu forward slash GatorCast. This is Suzanne Johnson speaking to you. Stay tuned for our next podcast very soon. Have a great day.